Hello, I'm Mary Nightingale. Welcome to the Piper Podcast, How I Grew My Brand. Today, I'm with Steve Moore and Paul Barham, founders of the social darts chain Flight Club. Since opening in October 2015, they've seen well, millions of customers pass through their doors, throwing something like 111 million darts. So far, they've opened venues in London, Manchester and Birmingham in the UK, as well as two in the US, in Boston and Chicago. Welcome, Steve and Paul. Hello. Thank you. So we're going to talk about where the idea came from and all of that. But first of all, for the uninitiated, what is Flight Club? It's a fusion of like three things. It's amazing food, amazing drink, and what we believe is one of the most spectacular activities out there. And it is social darts. So we, we basically put a, a ton of technology into traditional darts. And then on top of that, designed a, a massive, beautiful bar with phenomenal music and energy and, 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 and then elevate it into something of significant size. And then the combination of all of that. And it resulted in Flight Club, which has uh, yeah, been a huge success all around. And you are smiling. You're still smiling, which is pretty Oh, it's amazing. Well, we just we just opened two in the last three weeks, uh, one in Boston and one in Islington in London, and two very different kind of ways we do it. And, yeah, it's, it's still cool seeing new people play it in different places. OK, and I played, actually. I must yeah, say, well, I, I went to one of your venues. <laughs> I'm not a darts player, but it was a fabulous night out. From our perspective, it could be darts, it could be anything. Um, people want to eat, drink and play. So that's kind of how the whole activity was organised around that. As Steve said, beautiful food, drink in a beautiful venue. And as long as you're having fun and with your friends, your colleagues, your work colleagues, it's all an integrated experience to enjoy a night or afternoon out. All right. Where did the idea come from? Because I can see where it's at now, but there's a long way to go between an initial idea and this finished product. So where did it start? Well, it was actually a proper light bulb moment. And it was in Devon. And it was a rainy day and we are in a pub. And we weren't actually playing, but there was a group of friends playing darts. And we were like, wow, look at that. There was like eight, ten people around a dartboard. No idea what they were doing. Chalkball was out of control. Uh, boys and girls. And we were thinking wow, why doesn't that exist anymore? Kind of did in, when we grew up and, you know, our parents and all that happened. It was a real community feel. So at that moment, we were thinking, maybe it's time for that moment to happen again because it was massively lacking because pubs had turned into kind of a quasi kind of bistro things. They, they put food into pubs and the games room was gone. So then we set on about two and a half year journey to kind of then bring darts back into the community, but also do it in a crazy supercharged way okay and how long ago is this then that would be about six six and a half years ago so flight club shortage the first one opened four years ago all right so it's a two and a half year gestation so from that initial idea how did you actually put it into action because there's a huge amount of technology for example isn't there in flight club and explain how that all worked well the beauty about it is because we weren't from the industry at all and i think if we were I don't think we would have even approached anything because I think the level of kind of ignorance probably that, that we had, like we had no idea that how would you do any of this from the bar point of view, from the restaurant point of view, from the building, from the technology, from brand. So each bit that we didn't know, we approached somebody we knew and kind of got them to kind of work it out for us. It was quite spectacular. So from the technology point of view, Hawkeye, who is owned by Sony with 300 million behind them, attempted to score darts once and failed miserably. 
And then we found a chap who used to work for NASA who cracked it within under a year. So, Well, I'll be honest with you, when we first started it, there was no technology involved. We, we, we were basing the whole concept off a chalkboard. It was absolutely ludicrous. And then we were doing focus groups after focus groups every day. And they were kind of realising, I don't think anybody wants to bat up here. I think this is an absolute disaster. So we started layering in technology using Excel on PowerPoint at one point. That was a bit fancy. And then we realised we needed a gaming engine. So we approached some friends who used to work for Disney and then Sony. Um, but then on top of that, we needed to work out how on earth to score a real traditional dartboard. I think we need to explain exactly what the experience is at Flight Club because the, the point about Flight Club is there is no chalkboard. It's all super high-tech and there are cameras and you do selfies and it, there are different games that you can play. So explain exactly in basic terms what you get. So from coming into the venue, coming to the reception area, and you're taken to your playing area, which we call Oki. So it's incredibly important to us that being, uh, being a darts concept that we kept the traditional elements. So the dartboard to us is a heritage piece. It's iconic. It's untouched. The playing area is called an Oki like it was back 100, 150 years ago. So your host will take you to that area and kind of walk you and your, uh, your friends through um, logging in. So you take a picture, um, a selfie, your name, and it comes up, says, Mary, you're in the game above, above the dartboards. Up to kind of 18, 20 people can log in. So we've taken it from a, from a two-player game to a 20-player game. And then your host will talk you through the first game. So very, very simple game, uh, a game called Demolition. You start at 180, you finish at zero. I think most of us in our research has played darts at some point in our lives and are stuck on a double. So if you've got 20 to finish, you hit 20. You're obviously in a beautiful bar and the music's hugely important. I think Steve creates the music and lighting personally. So it's very, very pleased when people uh, people mention that. And what's really, really nice, the gaming engine that Steve was talking about and the automated dart scoring that Dr. Jason Dale put together, nobody really talks about that. They don't They don't even notice the technology's there and that's the absolute beauty about it. It's just people, people. And that's why we're incredibly proud from the get-go, really, when we started the business. And we were reliant on a huge amount of kindness and help from friends and family using their knowledge and expertise in kind of delivering what we wanted to do. And then it's the same now we're operational. And Steve and I are just two of hundreds now in, in the business that are very incredibly important to what we do. So um, you're looked after from start to finish by our team and people in the venue. You don't notice the technologies there. You're in a beautiful environment with great lighting, great sound, with great food and drink. And you leave as though you've just been transported somewhere else for the best part of four hours. You're not looking at your mobile phone. You're not doing anything apart from just having fun like you were kind of when you were five years old, really, sitting on a carpet playing with Lego with just with some food and drink next to you. It really encapsulates you back to that, to that time. Our biggest compliment that we see is that, like you said, nobody uses their phones there. Quite often you'd see a whole venue of 700 people and not one person is on their telephone. It's a very unique place. They're just fully immersed. But to return to how you actually made this thing work, to actually get that technology up and working must have been a huge task, wasn't it? Yeah, because we essentially had to do something called system integration. So we had to take a lot of different components, an analog component, the gaming bit, the vision systems, everything, and combine them with hardware. But nobody had done this before. We had experts in those fields that we found, but actually putting it all together landed with me and Paul. So it was, again, literally a garden shed. It was my garden shed that me and Paul <laughs> spent every day in, every night in, every weekend in. And we had the first Oki in there. We did a lot of focus groups in there. First technology went in. But that evolution of slowly introducing each iteration 
we probably had over 300 versions of the software by the time we launched because it had to be perfect to the millisecond, every single transition, every single moment, because it's not like a normal game you'd play on a PlayStation. This is like 16 people in a small space and it's all happening so fast. So to get everything right. So we introduced some more games, then we changed the timings, then we'd introduce the scoring system, and then we introduced more people, less people. We changed the orientation and this went on and on and on. And every time we thought, now ah, we've got it, we'd do a focus group and it was a horror show. And we're like, oh, we got it wrong again. <laughs> Just stop tweaking it. And then we went back, oh no, this is, oh, that's good. So we discovered like uh, things by mistake quite often. So iteration, it was all iteration. It was no assumptions. You love a focus group. We do. We did like 300. It was honestly exhausting, exhilarating. It was going to be 90 minute sessions each time. Every time it was like four or five hours. They were like, no, no, no can we do some more? They were just so addicted. And, and then, who were these people? Just what, friends? We or? started off with friends and then we went to friends of friends and then we went up degree from there. So by the time we launched the brand, so many thousands of people had already vested their time and energy into helping us put the product together. So it was a really mature commercial product on day one when we launched and it was a big venue in Shoreditch. What would we do? Let's talk about the launch then. Shoreditch was the first premises. Yeah. Big. Ambitious. Yeah. Yeah. Did you go straight in with a big launch? Did you do a sort of soft launch where there's still glitches? We did three test nights, which in hindsight is ridiculous Mm. because nothing was working the day before. And then, I don't know what happened, Stars Alliance or something like that, on the, on the first Monday, everything kind of worked. And we still quite don't know how it all happened because it was, it was beyond audacious. It was a bit silly, I'd say, in hindsight. But then again, you know, like, we just went for it. And then suddenly, on the Sunday night, it all started coming, coming together, didn't it? I was still working full-time at this point, so Steve was kind of holding all the... Um while well, spinning all the plates, I guess. I think what was quite amusing was kind of three months out, suddenly realising we needed food. And they're thinking, <laughs> <laughs> thinking actually, we, we probably ought to uh, think about um, sort of food offering. Yeah. And, um, and kind of putting on top of that, trying to combine what food it is with the actual brand itself. The brand was Victorian Fairground meets British pub. And darts originally came over to England via the Victorian Fairgrounds. It's the French board over La Flechette. So we had people in the focus groups. But what, what was really challenging, Mary, was what is Flight Club? It's a darts bar. We've played darts in pubs before. How is yours different? It was trying to convey that to people, particularly, I suppose, investors, to customers. Um, I can remember when we set up the phone lines three months out. Uh, we employed three, four people at that point just to answer the phone. Answer the phone for what? For, like, for I'd like for, to book. Yeah. Okay. And they were like, why is nobody ringing? This makes no sense. And then we got one phone call and it really went nuts. Yeah. By the time we yeah. opened our doors, we were just full. You were always very confident. No, 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 we honestly weren't. We were kind of confident really far out, maybe two years out, because we didn't know. You didn't know what you didn't know, did you? Exactly right. So actually it's scarier looking back because you're aware of, for example, you need gas. It sounds silly now, but we had to dig up half of Worship Street in Shoreditch and they dug up the wrong road. And then they were like, no, we can't do that again for four months. But we're, like, but we're open in two weeks. <laughs> right. So all these things like commercial leases and at one point the builders were going to go off site because our bank lending failed. So we had basically six hours to go and borrow money for three days of people, right? Just get the, keep the builders on there. And just I, I, I went to Islington Council and cried at one point because the planning didn't go through, right? I was like, please. Yeah, just, we, 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 like, it was horrible. When, when Steve says um, kind of finding people to borrow money, we, we raised about 160000 in the space of an afternoon. And that wasn't from a couple of kind of rich friends or us two guys. We, we're, we're certainly not <laughs> wealthy, begging. are we? we? You know, we had mates putting in five, ten thousand 10000 just to get us over the line because um, of the bank funding problems, which mm. was kind of encapsulated really kind of the the help and support we had throughout throughout the project really 
What about more about the two of you? What were you doing? We did a full circumnavigation of the world in a fire engine. It's actually very difficult to circumnavigate by road. Well, yes. Well, but, but you seem surprised. Well, again, we didn't know. So it's one of those things well, where what you do think... What do you mean it's... you went round the world in a fire engine? You can't just give me that throwaway line. Why? 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 Um, my dad got lung cancer and he was a, a firefighter. Um, and whilst he was doing chemotherapy, I kind of came up with this idea about maybe going to China in a fire engine or Russia. I don't know why. It was just, you know, something to kind of raise awareness because not much money goes to lung cancer. It doesn't have a great brand. Even though it's the biggest killer out of all the big Cs, nobody really backs it. So I was like, well, maybe we could raise awareness and money for the charity. So we um, we thought we'd do that. And then it kind of escalated a little bit like Flight Club. We went, well, we started plotting, thinking, well, if we go as far as Russia, we might as well go to Mongolia. And then uh, whilst we're, if we can get as far as China, and then we went, you know what? Looking back is the most terrifying thing because you've got shipping, you've got... The number of visas was like something like 32 visas, border teams. We had 16 border teams and obviously 16 countries. And actually, if you st- I, I made that promise to my dad before he died and then he died and I was kind of stuck with having to do it. I was like, oh, OK, now I do. And that kind of preceded Flight Club in the same way. It was getting a lot of talented people together. Again, we didn't know anything. And Paul- so we did the two of you yes. were on this week? Yes, there was 27 people in total and Paul was a big, big, big part of um, the planning and executing of it. You earned a living, though, at some yeah, point. So did, you, I, did you work? How do you know each other? We went um, skiing with a whole bunch of friends 20, 25 years ago, and then that's where we first met. And you met. met and you fell in love. Well, I... I <laughs> you spotted kindred spirits. I, yeah. But you were both working in finance in the city, were you? Uh, yes. So at that point I was or a, shortly after? I was a futures trader. And Paul? I uh, worked in private wealth management, okay. so financial services. OK, well. so would it be fair to say, then, that you, you were money men? You knew you knew about business, or you just <laughs> no. knew about making a deal. No, because Steve. as a trader, certainly that's got really nothing to do with business as such. I was a proprietary trader, so I used to trade like um, futures, yeah, and options. Okay. So you so basically you, no you, you had the chat. <laughs> Kind of. Yeah. Would, would I had a lot of screens. Say... I had. A, I was very good at multitasking. I had like six, you know, sixteen screens. I was a quant. Buy, buy, buy low, sell high. It sounds all very glamorous, trader in financial services, but we certainly weren't two wealthy guys with just money to burn or with parents with with a lot of cash. It was terrifying because I took a sabbatical to do the fire engine. I didn't. I didn't have any money at all to do flight club so it's not like we had sea, sea capital we no, were... well, I was going to ask you about yeah. that because you know it's a lovely narrative isn't it it's very optimistic it's a lovely success story but you know the nuts and bolts is you've got to live and you've got to make money and, and this incredible enthusiasm must have had there must have been a downside to it as well well I think it? if it wasn't for the fire engine I don't think A we would have got the backing of our close friends and family or anybody else because essentially I said to my wife look um, I've just, I've just finished the fire engine sorry about that and then, so you uh, left the wife and the two small children? No, she, uh, there was no children at the time. Okay, just the um, wife. And, and Amy was on the part of the fire engine, so okay. that was good. Just a word word on Amy, really. She's been um, massive in terms of organisation, in terms of the fire engine, as well as really very much the third co-founder of Flight Club, really, yes. in a lot of ways. I'm going to leave my job that I've just got back to from the fire engine. We've got like a six-month baby. So Paul moved in to help pay the mortgage. My mum like delayed retirement. It was so broke, and then massive loads of debt doing it because it took two and a half years. We honestly thought we could do it in like maybe a year. So it was pretty brutal how much debt we got into. Do you think your your lack of experience, your naivety, was was a help or a hindrance? A help. I want you to. It's, it'd be too scary. You know, 
read a few interviews, you said there's almost an element of self-harm involved well, when that, you that decide was, yeah. to build something totally new. I think there is that sort of weird addiction that um, we we both and um, a lot of the team really enjoy the journey from A to B rather than getting to B. Yes. So the actual like building a venue takes like a whole year, and there is a kind of a like an adrenaline kind of thing. Like, do we are we going to do this again? Like we're building like a new one in Leeds at the moment, and we're like, oh, we're doing this, we're doing this again. So like the day after Boston, we were heavily into the design for Leeds, and it's kind of a cool place to be. Okay, so at what stage are you now? You know this Piper theory of inflection point seven seventeen seventeen. It's the point at which your business needs to make a major. Evolution, if you like, yeah. numbers of people you employ or venues or turnover or whatever. So give me a snapshot of where you are now. I would say we're at that point. If we've got um, nine venues, we have um, probably the best part of seven, 800 people um, in the family. And it's got quite serious in the sense of the central team. So the central team alone, all the developers, the finance, the creatives, the marketing is kind of like 75 strong, which is like the size of most companies. Mm. That's a big red engine is the is the central team. So that's got pretty serious in the sense of a lot of employment, a lot of customers. There's a lot of people relying on us to execute this properly. So I think this is kind of the moment we're looking at other international opportunities. Obviously, we've got the second brand now with Electric Shuffle. So it's a very, very, very big moment for us at the moment. In terms of where we are now and what changes we've had to make, I suppose initially from two people and then building the shortage team, Right from the get-go, it's been really, really important to us that the, the entire central team has been able to scale to support the business kind of going forward. And it's very much a team of people now as opposed to just two people. There's some really very clever people um, working the various functions. And you've kept all of that expertise within the team. You don't subcontract any of it out, do you? It's no. All, it's I, all in-house. That was really important to us, to be as, as agile as we can. Um, it's quite an insane thing to do. Every single service we do in-house, all the marketing, the design, the animations, the program management, the project management, the property, the fo- everything's in-house. So this is really serious now. You've got human resources, all, all, all of that stuff that you have to do by the mm. book. How have you adapted to that? Because you're a couple of guys with great, wonderful ideas, brackets a bit crazy, some might say. You know, you have to actually do this properly, don't you, when it's this big? It is very serious. Yeah. But if you take it too seriously, then there's no point kind of being there. So if you have the right framework, the right governance, you know, so we have like a nine-strong leadership team to give that business shape. Because fundamentally, if that gets too serious, it feeds through to the customer. So there's still a a certain amount of silliness in the whole process because the customer will feel it. So, for example, the, the room of toys, which you saw in Victoria. Ah, the room of teddies. Right. If you can't dream a dream and, and do that room. So it's a room in Flight Club Victoria that has 1,406 at the time cuddly toys on the ceiling. Great for acoustics. Oh, weird. It is weird. But then also there we built like a, a full-size health skelter to get into the venue. We also built a... Um, telephone box has a disco in it. We had a complete replica to the millimetre of my garden shed, right? That was quite self-indulgent. But the point is that we just kept pushing the boundaries. We're like, what are you doing? We're like, I don't know, but this sounds like a good idea. I have so much I want to ask you. You're listening to the Piper podcast, How I Grew My Brand. And I'm talking to Steve Moore and Paul Barham, founders of Flight Club. The dynamic is fascinating. How does it work? And how does it work with the broader team as well? Yeah, it's a really, really good question, actually. And obviously, Steve and I, um, and our relationship has actually changed quite a bit in the last last four years, really. So um, when we originally set up, we both worked on the, on the, 
the, the actual gameplay, the product itself, and spent a huge amount of time and effort investing in that. And that's where we kind of feel our knowledge and expertise lies in actually what the product is. I suppose when we started the business, I joined it a, a year late, so I was working full time. Picked up some bits from Steve, so ran some various functions. And as we've grown up as a business, I suppose, and we've been able to bring in people who know what they're doing, my role has changed. So at the moment, we're in a really lovely place now where UK and US, we're really growing our business in, in the right way. Huge opportunities for us internationally, and that's the bit I'm kind of focusing on now so I can pick up and watch the success in the UK and US and kind of replicate that around the world. Whereas Steve's very much kind of at the helm now, running the leadership team and running a business from that perspective. It's been a lot of lot of change, but like we love change. We've got four values in the business, warmth, passion, um, togetherness, and um, really at the heart of it is innovation, isn't it? Do you ever disagree? Does Do you drive each other nuts? No, never. <laughs> I, th- I think quite a, quite I'm a, saying nothing. I'm just I, waiting I, for I, you I, I to think, tell. I, I suppose I suppose Steve and I are lucky that kind of we're we're badged as founders, and I just mentioned Amy earlier. We've got so many people that that were part of that. We um, Dr. Jason Dale on the automated dart scoring, a chap called Dustin Atten who's now our COO who um, works on the operational side. I mean, after all, we are. A, pub bar business so someone needs to know what they're doing but it's now very much a team of nine people that run this business with with steve at the head and that's what's really lovely and how that's changed and we've grown up as a business but we still go on holiday oh you do yeah <laughs> not just the two of us but yeah we do we still ski together no absolutely i mean it's there's not two founders out there who don't go through incredibly challenging times together because if you did just completely get on probably means you're doing the wrong thing because you're not kind of testing and challenging each other properly. So, I, I want to ask you about the venues. They are enormous, aren't they? Mm. And, and they're not in what I would have thought of as, as traditional sort of entertainment hospitality spaces. That They seem to be in all over the place, like in something you might expect to be an office space. Well, Victoria certainly is. Victoria's kind of a, like just a, the only one that's kind of in that kind of building. And we, we took that space because of its locality in Victoria. And Victoria, Victoria's quite a sad little place. It's yeah. all a bit grey, isn't it? Yeah. So we went, no, we'll give it a massive fairground. It's got a really cool outside area. But if it, the likes of Shoreditch, Blooms, Matched, especially Birmingham, and Islington is like an old pub. And that's more... a departure for you as well, Islington. That's a slightly new direction. Isn't yes. It? It's a bit smaller and it's a bit... A, a slightly different approach. It is. That, it's, right? So to put it in the context, so Fly Club Victoria, where you went, holds like seven hundred and fifty people. Mm. Islington holds one hundred and fifty people. It's beautiful, and I think that's kind of where we want to go long term because our goal was to bring that kind of cuteness and more community to the to the world. So if if at any point we can get back to Croyd at the end of the journey and have a pub with three or four ockies in it. That would be kind of the end of the UK journey, should we say? So Victoria's the big silly concept album. It's the Sergeant Peppers of it, and Islington's more like Let It Be. It's back to basics. It's kind of small. It's cute, and you know, and it's raw, and it's just the most fantastic venue in the world. What have you got that means that you're succeeding where others are failing? I think it's detail, but fundamentally, because the staff love the product so much, and they play it after hours. They play till like six a.m. Honestly, the service is so good because they understand and help build the product and love the product, so therefore the customer will. And I think that's kind of lacking elsewhere. I suppose we're not a one-trip pony, if you like. We're not just a bar. We're not just a restaurant. We're not just somewhere where you come and bowl, for example, because if you went bowling, you probably wouldn't think of hanging there for a bar or something to eat. It's very much an integrated offering, and we kind of consider ourselves a destination for that. We hope that people see their entire night there, so you come there, have a drink before you play, 
you might have some food and enjoy the music and enjoy the atmosphere. So that's why some of our venues are kind of set up from a destination perspective. And originally our business plan was destination. Would you believe Shoreditch was a destination place? And the bit we're in has changed quite a bit now. It's so, so important that we're a great bar and kitchen in our own right, irrespective of the social darts. Because if you don't get that bit right, you kind of lose the whole focus of why you're there. And then you put the social darts onto that, which gives the atmosphere and the enjoyment. Um, and that's kind of where we think we're successful, along with the people that work there, the product we've got, and the constant innovation that we put into that. I want to talk to you about the people, because there's a war on talent, isn't there? Everyone wants the good people. How do you hold on to your team? Our retention is yes. insane. It's very good, it's isn't it? unbelievable. So in the central team, it's near on 100%. And in the venues, it's like record highs in industry, mainly because of our commitment to development. We've had waiters and waitresses that are now like assistant general managers after four years. And because of additional venues, we can provide that kind of career development. Because you're growing so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And so we can really show these guys, if you're the right person, we're going to believe in you and we will develop you. And then that is just fantastic. You sit across the board. It's so cool when you go into Islington or you go to Victoria and you see the AGM that you knew was a barman or bar lady in the first flight club and you're like yes this is so cool and you see that across the board and retention is fantastic because of it but that can't be maintained when it gets really big can it or can it why not I don't know you tell me Steve got um, kind of an external consultant to come in to talk us through the vision mission and values of our company which are incredibly important to us and it wasn't Steve and me we're sitting with sitting with some consultants in a room thinking oh they sound really really great don't they we had the entire team from Shoreditch the entire central team actually sat down and thought, what is it? And why are we here? And what we're doing? And, and how, how do we want to go forward? And I think the values underpin absolutely everything we do. I mean, Steve and I are kind of naturally very kind of friendly, hopefully, you're very, very respectful people. And the way we're kind of talking to you and the guys here, Mary, is exactly how we speak to every person in the venue. We kind of see organisations that haven't really got that flat structure in terms of how they speak to each other. And um, for, for us, everybody's so, so important in what we do. Um, everybody's valued everybody, everybody's hugely valued and we're yeah, incredibly proud of what they do Do you get much external help? Not so much anymore because we have a people's expert now mm. but again that's something we kind of reinforce in fact we reinforced it yesterday we had the end of year review and the awards for the month are always done on values not on performance so it's kind of it's a, I think it's a cooler way of looking at it isn't it? The guy who won it Fran it wasn't like because you worked very hard this month it was because you shone in warmth and these are the examples of it. What about investors? Because, you know, you were saying you maybe need to get funding at the end of next year or whatever. How, how do you visualise the next stage? So it started off with 43 friends. Very happy friends, I should imagine. They are now. now. Yes. It, that made it equally terrifying. The only person I, we didn't let invest was um, our parents. Just in case it all went wrong. Mm. You know, so, had somewhere to go. Um, too many of them put in too much money that they couldn't afford. So How much a, money did you need to start with? Take me right back about, to the beginning. We did about 1.4, 1. 1. 1.5 million in equity and then probably about half of that in debt, so about 2.5 yeah. million. So that was incredibly stressful because they all, we said, look, honestly, you have to, this money's lost now. It's gone. Mm. Right? You have to pretend it's lost. But even after it all went well, they all went, we, like, we actually genuinely would have been very upset if we, if we lost the money, even though you disclaimed it. So it was terrifying. I mean, it's so precarious, isn't it? Mm. And that naivety and enthusiasm combo yeah. that you had, 
it worked, but it easily might not have done. Well, especially because you hear a lot of only one in 1,000 startups work and all this, and you've like, got to get past the first month, and you're like, stop, can everybody stop telling me I, this? I, I suppose what's very important to say is what we do is we take what we do very, very seriously. We didn't take anything for granted. If somebody told us something, kind of an expert from a solicitor or somebody in property, we then asked somebody else and asked somebody else. We triple-checked everything because we understood early on that it's not about asking a question, it's not about asking the right question. There was an incredible amount of detail. Every single part of that business plan was so deep. And what about the next stage then? Because you started with these 43 investors and you had to get more funding then, presumably a little way in. So what happened next? So we've done three fundraisers already. And each one takes a chunk out of you each time because it is an exhausting process. It's really cool because obviously a lot of people are really super interested. But then each time, you you know, you go through this journey of, you know, the legality behind it because it is all very serious. And I suppose doing that three times now in total, is it? Um, And then so the one we probably will do next year will be a bigger size. But we have to be comfortable that we can deliver the people, which we are now. Because like we said, to keep that DNA... There's no point doing 10 venues a year if you can't staff it properly or the venue's not cool enough and it's not, you know. So I think we're getting to the point where we can do that and then the funding will be appropriate for that. Mm. You're already stateside, aren't you? Yeah, Boston and Chicago. Um, What is it next step, the world? In terms of growing the business, I suppose we've kind of got four key pillars to our business plan. It's like continuing to kind of grow the UK market in the right way. Our new concept, Electric Shuffle, which is a shuffleboard which we launched two weeks ago in Canary Wharf and it's going incredibly well and we were just as excited about that as we are about Flight Club Darts. So it's growing those two brands in the UK, pushing on with the USA expansion, obviously being English speaking and the biggest global market for us potentially should outweigh anything um, anything the UK has. And then, um, yeah, growing us internationally. So there's opportunities in mainland Europe and Australia, just two places we're, we're currently working on. We've never really led ourselves from a financial perspective. It's always been from a product and how much we can grow the business. And Steve just came back with our um, CFO, Ross, from Boston last week, and he didn't even speak about the, the financial aspects of it. It's just the sheer joy of, of hearing people cheering in Boston of something that kind of was created in Steve's shed kind of four and a half, five years ago. It was uh, quite a moment for you, wasn't it? Because you're never quite sure, because it's popular everywhere so far. Is there a moment of doubt in but your mind? There's always, it always is, even though, yeah. in, a, in, a, in secret, outwardly, you just say, oh, this is going to be fine. And then you're like, okay, doors open. London's a bit like, you know, they love it, but they, they give it 10 minutes. Yeah, it's fine, yeah, whatever, this cool. is good. Uh, Manchester like, really? like, this is amazing. Birmingham, like, 10 seconds in there, like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. And, <laughs> like, Birmingham has gone crazy for us. And it's always like with Boston, I was like, what's the noise going to be like? Because I can just sit there, I can, I can hear like the differences in the venues. You always just wait for that first moment on that opening night after, and you're like, does it have that same noise that Shoreditch has of that screaming? It sounds like you're in a fairground and in the distance you hear somebody on a roller coaster, you hear that wee, oh, yeah, it's just like constant. And then you hear that in Birmingham for the first time. And then when we were in Boston last week and I heard it, I was like, oh, it's fine, it's all good. They've got it. They've got the noise, yeah. And you can actually tell which game they're playing as well from which noise it is. Okay, so where, where, how do you decide where to go next? W- would you return to your old haunt of China without the fire engine <laughs> this time? What do you think? Yeah, 100%. It'd be cool, yeah. wouldn't it? I suppose in terms of the um, next opportunities globally, we were quite on top of our intellectual property on the outset, so we've got quite a, a portfolio of our trademarks and patents globally. So in terms of the next steps, obviously USA, that's really a huge opportunity for us. Secondly would be Europe. Obviously the English-speaking parts of Europe, Ireland would be a clear um, focus of ours. And then obviously you're, you're looking at the bigger economies in Europe, such as France and Germany. So a big part of it is partner identification, because if we were going to do it ourselves, we'd have to build a team from scratch. And you're talking about then 
two, three years away by the time you've built the team and obtained the property. So we're probably looking for partners in those jurisdictions as we would do in Australia. So I think those four outside the US are kind of a clear objectives for us. Um, and again, if there's opportunities elsewhere, we'll obviously look at them. But we have got a strategy in terms of which global jurisdictions we're going after first. How do you define success? You are a success by any standards, right? Does it feel like that? It feels like projects only half completed, really. There's so much more we think and we want to do. It's a good question. I think it's quite relatively straightforward. It is that noise that we're talking about. It's that screaming. It's bringing that joy back to a particular town or that wasn't there before. So if you hear that joy in more places, if you hear it in Sydney, that's cool. If you hear it in Beijing, that's equally cool. And that's kind of success, really. I don't think it's. I think if you had kind of financial um, milestones, I think you're kind of screwed. Some people get into business to make X amount after five years. We were just like, we just want to do something cool. And, and then, you know, if the money follows, that's great. But if not, it's okay as long as people enjoy the product. Does it feel good to have made money? At what point do you sit back and just spend it? Well, we, we, we haven't taken anything out of the company. We kept all the equity in the business. And there's no, you, you don't have dreams of yachts and beaches and a bit villas. What is it, generally know that the motivation is, um, it's nice not to be like completely bankrupt, but it's, yeah, just money doesn't really, doesn't even matter at all, I'll be honest with you. Are entrepreneurs born? Are they made? I think they come out of necessities sometimes. Maybe it's in you, but, but on Matilda's, my daughter's birth certificate, I went in there and I was like, I've got a register. And it was like occupation. I was like, shit, I don't have a job because I'm like creating flight club with Paul. And I just put down entrepreneur and the lady went, now I've got a job over you. <laughs> Do you ever get the fear? Have you ever had the fear? Yes. 4am every night. Every night. Mm. Do you? It's terrifying. I don't know if you're joking or not. No, it's, no it was, that was my serious face. Was it? Um, okay. Yeah, no, it's terrifying. The whole thing's terrifying. But that's kind of cool. I think if it wasn't, it's like, that's kind of where you get the adrenaline. It, mm. it, it's generally terrifying because we know one like thing that doesn't go quite right can really... Over-expanding. Pe- people do it yeah, again and again under. and it goes all Like under. velocity okay. is everything, right? If you get it under or over, then actually, you know, it's a mistake. So, yeah, constant fear. I think it's fear of probably letting people down because you know that there's a lot of employment there, a lot of friends who invested and still are. Responsibility. Yeah. I reckon it took me like at least six months to be elated about launching Flight Club Shortage because the fear was still, (laughs) the anxiety was still there. And and do you think that's what fuels it in a way? You know, that sort of anxiety. And Paul's keeping really quiet here. He's not admitting he's going, yeah, I'm cool. I don't worry about anything. We're in charge of a business that's turning over millions of pounds. And ordinarily, if you were going to recruit a CDO off the shelf, my, my CV wouldn't get anywhere near it. It's removing that fear and having the confidence that knowing that you understand the business, anything's possible. We, we proved that with the fire engine. We proved that with the, with the fire truck. And this is actually kind of, in comparison, this is actually quite easy. But Paul's done five, five Ironman. So, I, so I, is it six? Sorry, six, six Ironman. Yeah, you can. Okay, so six Ironman. So I think you can probably assume from that he also enjoys the pain of the, you know, the the A to B. Oh, <laughs> yeah. just want to smash himself up. Yes, well, you yeah. said the whole the whole yeah. venture's self harm, isn't yeah, it? it is, to yeah, actually yeah. Let's look to the future then. You've got this massive success on your hands. Yeah. You still enjoy it. That's the whole point of it. But when you look ahead, what's the biggest challenge? Do you think that is facing you? And I'm thinking back again to this seven seventeen seventy thing because you're going to reach another reflection point where there have to be big changes. 
I, I purely think it's the velocity of growth. I really think about getting that right, getting the balance right. There's been so many good brands before us that have got it wrong and trying to foresee that, I think. And will there be a pivot? It would be unusual for us not to have a pivot within the next five years. But it'd be kind of the same what that might be. Paul? Ensuring we keep that DNA throughout. When you think about it, the business starting in 2015 and now it's only got nine venues. That changes you know, an incredible amount to deal with for, for anybody. Well, yeah, it's the communication of the journey. So you can either give, communicate too much and everybody like, just gets terrified or you don't communicate enough and they're like, I don't know what's going on. So it's like, that's a really big challenge. What advice would you offer to someone who was looking at you and wanting to take inspiration from you? What advice would you? From the very get-go, yeah. I suppose. Um, ultimately, what problem are they trying to solve? Um, we were very, very clear from the outset that in terms of the space we were in and the industry we were going into, social entertainment venues, that we wanted kind of an, an integrated offering where there was a quality of gameplay. And I suppose that was the problem we were trying to solve in the market. Be very clear what you're trying to solve because unless you know that, you kind of lose focus of what you're doing, really. You can pretty much achieve anything. You just have to be very aware from the get-go that you don't need to actually do it. You just need to find somebody that you went to primary school with. We had people who went to primary school who helped us with branding. One of my good mates from school I hadn't seen him in 20 years is Dustin. I had no idea how to run a bar. So my friend from university owned an accounting company. And I was like, can you help with that? I don't know what the balance sheet is. So I think, actually, people will help you if you have the right story. And I think too many people will suffer trying to work everything out themselves. Build a team. And have fun. You've got to have fun every single day. Work with friends as well. It's amazing. So just like build a company where all your mates can work. It's quite cool, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much indeed, Steve and Paul. Thank you. Thank you.